You're listening to Feminist Current, making waves in the mainstream. You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. It seems that, almost out of the blue, conversations about transgender kids are happening everywhere. We, as a society, are to celebrate, accept, and encourage the transitioning of youth who identify as transgender, no questions asked. It sounds like the right thing to do. We all, of course, want kids to feel safe and supported. But this discourse is new, as is the phenomenon, and many are concerned we aren't asking enough questions, and that we're moving too quickly to diagnose and transition youth who feel they are struggling with their bodies, or so-called gender identity. Lisa Marciano is one of those people who is concerned we're moving too fast and too uncritically towards the social trend of transing kids. Lisa is a clinical social worker and Jungian analyst. I spoke with her over the phone from her home in Philadelphia. Here is that interview. First, I wonder if you can tell me a bit about your background and, you know, kind of what led you to look more critically at the increasing numbers of trans kids and this push to affirm, um, you know, self-described gender identity, you could call it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I'm also a Jungian analyst, and I have a private practice. And I guess I, you know, it 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 just started kind of coming to my attention that that was this was happening more and more. I was hearing it, um, kind of come in first through some of my clients who had family members that either were transitioning or knew someone who was transitioning, and I. Uh, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought, well, this is really, so this is this great thing that kids are doing. They're, you know, challenging gender norms and they're sort of breaking down, you know, the way things have always been. This is really interesting. Um, this could yield some really fascinating life experiences, you know, spend some part of your young adulthood living as the opposite sex. And, you know, I just I just was sort of like, oh, kids these days kind of thing. But then um, when I realized that people were permanently changing their bodies, that little romance that I had with this concept was just immediately over. Um, so, you know, it just, I, I mean, I, it, to me it just seems like such, uh, such common sense that a young person changing their body permanently is a bad idea. I just, I don't even, under, I find it hard to believe that that's a question, that that's something I need to say, that that's open to debate. Um, and then, you know, it just became really obvious to me that it's kind of in the culture everywhere. I mean, you can't really turn on the news without hearing a story about a transgender kid. And I started seeing it in my community with high school aged kids that I'm, that I know or know of. And, um, you know, I live in a sort of uh, mid-Atlantic major metropolitan area and a lot of the schools around here have this going on and it's been really kind of celebrated and held up as wonderfully progressive and meanwhile I was sitting over here going something's just not right about this so I started educating myself and 
you know, realize that there are these communities of detransitioners and these parents who are really bereft over what's happening to their kids and just sort of got drawn into it that way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like you've you've obviously noticed, I think I get the sense that people just really badly want to, you know, support kids in quotations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. families and teachers and therapists and the media um, seems to have very quickly accepted an approach to what we might call or what the media calls trans kids. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, I think that they see this approach as open-minded and supportive and mm-hmm. so will respond by saying things like, kids know what they are, we should just trust them, which actually translates to validate the so-called gender identity of kids immediately, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's the problem with this approach? Well, first of all, if you think about it, there, there's, there's very few things that, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if, uh, you know, if you have kids yourself, but there's very few things that a kid would say, you know, mom, I feel this way or I want this way, where, where parents ordinarily would just sort of say, well, okay, honey. I mean, I, I know, I know 13 year olds who, who would insist that it was literally a question of life or death, whether or not they got an iPhone. And, I mean, as adults, like, we know that's not true. We know that it, you're not going to die if you don't get an iPhone, right? So, or, or younger kids, you know, who, who have, I mean, I, I know kids that have, you know, lived as cats for months at a time. But, but you know, it, it would be ludicrous for us to sort of take them at their word and, and tell them that, yes, they are, in fact, a cat. So I think part of parenting is, you know, empathically and with attunement, knowing when to say no to our kids, when to um, set them off down a different road, and um, when to kind of help them adjust to something that may be, you know, uncomfortable to them in that moment, but is part of the world that they need to adjust to. So, you know, where did we get this idea that we just sort of rubber stamp whatever a kid tells us? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, we don't let them eat whatever they want. <laughs> we make them bathe. <laughs> we make them wear clothes. <laughs> There's all kinds of things we do to our kids all the time. It's called parenting. Mm-hmm. And in in the piece I read by you over at, at Fourth Wave... Now, you wrote about what you called the identity model. I mean, first of all, what is that? But what, And what's your perspective on the identity model when it comes to working with people who identify as transgender? Mm-hmm. The identity model tells us that someone coming into our office explaining that they think that they're transgender or that they are transgender or that they are a boy trapped in a girl's body or however they phrase it. Um, The rules around identity is that people get to claim their own identity. No one else gets to do that for them. And the other rules are that you can't question it, that if you question someone's identity, you're not validating them, you're not believing them. And, you know, there there may be, uh, you know, some validity to that in some fears, although I would always say that, you know, it's not really my job to validate just as a person, right? It's not my, I mean, if you tell me that you're a really great knitter, it's not really my job to affirm that for you, mm-hmm. you know? 
But you can have that even if you've never knitted. You can go around, you know, identifying as a great knitter. That's, that's you know, you're not hurting anybody. I would say that there's a, a kind of um, tyranny uh, that goes along with an identity model. It, it tyrannizes. In, in the case of transgenderism, it tyrannizes people because you cannot question, you, you cannot explore, you cannot suggest that there might be alternative reasons for these feelings. You cannot suggest that there might be alternative ways of dealing with them because doing any of that is tantamount to invalidating someone's identity, and that is not allowed. I, I feel like somehow this agenda has gotten hooked on really well to uh, the gay and lesbian rights movement so that somehow, you know, I think for liberals, when 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 we say, well, wait a minute, you know, do you do you, how, how do you know you're a boy? To a you know young woman with dysphoria, for example, who's claiming she's transgender, you know the 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 thing the, thing, the, the sh- shot that gets fired back is, well, are you are you trying to you know this is conversion therapy? You're trying to make me be something that I'm not, but in fact they couldn't be more different. I mean, you know, I would say, well, who's trying to convert whom to what here? You know, patients that come to therapists looking for treatment such as hormones or surgery are looking to be converted. And it is absurd to think that a therapist wouldn't explore that and and want to ask some questions about it. The kind of social justice slash identity approach that privileges the self-diagnosis of the person sitting across from us runs completely counter to the way that mental a mental health model has always worked where we take in the information about the person's lived experience not necessarily the conclusions they've drawn about it but just you know what their experience is and then we you know we listen and and we assess and we consider different possibilities and then we share with them what we think is going on and what they might want to do about it. You mentioned earlier that you've done a lot of work with detransitioners, so people mm-hmm. who've transitioned and then changed their minds. Is that accurate mm-hmm. to describe it in that way? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I want to clarify that um, when I when I say work, I have um, sort of had the privilege of getting to know many of these people and learning from them. So it's it's not clinical work that I've done with them, but it's you know me sort of being educated by them, them sharing their experiences with me outside of a clinical context. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Thanks. So can you share what you've learned? about our current understanding of transgenderism based on your your experiences with these people who've detransitioned? Sure. Uh, well, you know, uh, there's very little research on this. There is some, um, although it's informal, but uh, it's, it's pretty compelling uh, information. So a lot of this is coming from personal stories from people who transitioned, and and it is a lot of what I would have expected, frankly. It's um, in some cases, it's young women who uh, were having a difficult time, perhaps because they had experienced trauma 
Many of them were raped and were suffering from the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, including dissociation. Um, some of them were bullied. Uh, they were socially isolated. They had a lot of internalized homophobia. Many of them currently identify as uh, lesbian. And, uh, you know, it, it's becoming pretty obvious that it's much cooler to be a straight boy than a lesbian girl for many of today's young lesbians. Um, they came to believe that they were transgender and they did not get help from therapists in unraveling what was really going on. No therapist asked questions about uh, whether or not they might be lesbian. No therapist assured them that most young women go through a period of hating their body. I mean, that is just inc incredibly common in our culture and not just for young women. Part of the danger of self-diagnosis is uh, if, you, if you spend some time on the Internet looking at these sites where kids get information about whether or not they could be trans, the symptoms are so vague, and there's so many of them. I mean, you know, do you hate to wear a dress? Well, then maybe you're trans. Do you hate your body? Then maybe you're trans. So these young, in many cases, these young women that I've come to know, although I've talked to some detransitioned men as well, we're, we're struggling with kind of normal things that a lot of young women struggle with, especially lesbian or bisexual women, and no one helped them interpret it that way. They got help interpreting it from, you know, social media sites. And the, uh, the people on those sites assured them that they were transgender. Mm -hmm. And when they took it to a therapist in many cases, the therapist didn't, didn't help them hold that and be curious about it. Mm. I wanted to talk about the way that you're approaching the the medical aspect of transitioning for kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, a lot of us, I think, maybe not enough of us, though, <laughs> I think are concerned about the impact of hormones and hormone blockers mm -hmm. on kids. I mean, what are what are the hormone treatments that are that are being offered to to so-called trans kids right now? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Well, I should, you know, just a little caveat that I'm I'm not a physician and I'm I'm uh, you know, not an expert in these medications. So I'm sort of an informed layperson, but um I don't I you know, I don't have uh I don't have all the kind of data at my fingertips, but it's becoming more common to prescribe hormone blockers such as Lupron to children who have been um, socially transitioned as they enter puberty. Sometimes parents and medical professionals make the decision to arrest pubertal development, uh, supposedly to give the young person more time to sort out what they want to do. The problem appears to be that the endogenous hormones released at puberty uh, have a significant impact on brain development and not going through that um, definitely has an effect. I mean, it's been, hormone blockers have been presented as a neutral intervention, but I just don't think there's any way that can be true. For one thing, kids are not keeping up with their peers who, you know, their peers are likely going through puberty and going through changes. So there's immediately sort of a social factor where the kid is 
different than their peers. And then in addition, like I said, there's kind of a rewiring that occurs in adolescence as a result of the hormones. You know, and part of that is sexuality and sexual desire. So if you have a kid who maybe was socially transitioned pre-puberty, who then goes on blockers, who's never had that sort of experience of his or her own sexuality, you know, as a kind of newly sexual person going through puberty, and, and then they're supposed to make a decision about something that really affects their sexuality, um, it's not really surprising that um, I think there's one case in the literature, I think there's one known kid who did not continue on to cross-sex hormones after being on puberty blockers. So in other words, being on blockers likely solidifies a cross-sex identification. And then, of course, you know, as I said in the article, and I hope people realize, if you've gone on blockers and then continued on to cross-sex hormones, that is guaranteed sterility 100% of the time. For males and females. Yes, because the gametes never develop. And it's not just medical transition and puberty blockers that you're concerned about with regard to transitioning and the potential to detransition if if somebody changes their mind. You also argue that just social transition can have negative impacts. Can you talk about that? Sure. And I, and I guess I want to say that, you know, there's a great deal that's not known. There's a great deal that hasn't been researched yet. Um, but I, I want to sort of maybe talk about this in two different categories. There's, there's the young children who often begin in very early childhood, you know, saying that they are the opposite sex or they wish they were the opposite sex or, you know, mommy, when are you going to put me back in and I'm going to come out a girl or whatever. And um, the research shows that 80% of those kids will desist by adulthood. It's probably puberty that helps them desist. And as you probably know, most of that 80% will come to identify as gay or lesbian in adulthood. So we're, we're probably transing young gays and lesbians a lot of the time when we do this with young kids. Mm-hmm. However, some 20% will persist in their cross-sex identification and, and want to transition in adulthood. So, you know, is it possible that it makes sense if we could know for sure who is that 20%? Would it make sense to transition them? I mean, I mean in some ways it, it's a better, you get better kind of, cosmetic outcomes if you transition early. I mean, I, I'm not arguing that we ought to be doing that. I'm just saying that I could, I could see if we had a way to know for sure, well, then, then we might be able to talk about that making sense. But at this point, even the top gender docs across the world will tell you we have no idea who's going to persist and desist. We just don't know at this point. So... You know, I, I think that if you have a young child who's allowed to socially transition, they may not have any idea what it feels like to live as their natal gender. So, and then if you put them on blockers, and then how are they supposed to even know what's at stake? Um, so I, I think that's a very uh, kind of difficult needle to thread. Um, I'm not saying that I have the answers. Some of those kids are very insistent and persistent. Um, 
you know, again, I would say that even some of the persistent, insistent, and consistent ones will desist. We know this for a fact. But nevertheless, I, I can see that it, there are certainly dilemmas there. Let's put it that way. There's another group, however, uh, for whom I think things are even more clear. And these are, these are kids, many of them girls, who are coming to identify as transgender in either the tween or teen years without having had childhood dysphoria. This is a new presentation. It wasn't really seen until very recently, and now all of a sudden it has exploded. Before, say, maybe five or ten years ago, it was very unusual to have a kid who had been uh, sort of, you know, nothing out of the ordinary in terms of their gender preferences or presentation in early childhood to suddenly come out as trans at age 13, 14, 15. Now it's happening all the time. And uh, to me, this is clearly a case of social contagion. And I, you know, I want to be clear, you know, there's this wonderful blogger, Max, who writes this great blog, Born Wrong. She's a detransitioned young woman. And she makes this great point that, that I'm going to um, just sort of reference here, that it's not like the Internet made them trans. That's not really it. But forever and ever and ever, young girls going through adolescence have struggled. I mean, if you look up Wikipedia's Mass Hysteria's article, it'll list, I don't know, a couple of dozen cases of mass hysteria, and something like 95% of them involved predominantly teenage girls. I mean, this is just something that we know that they they struggle and they and they always struggle in ways that that are um, have some similarities but are sort of culturally determined. So about a hundred years ago, um, you know, the psychiatric uh, hospitals were filled with young women who had hysteria, and they did things like threw themselves around the room and fits and smeared feces on the wall. You know, and you you really go, God, like who does that? You know, people don't do that anymore. But then, you know, at some point, kids, about a generation or so ago, cutting was what the kids did. And mm. before that, it was eating disorders. It's, in other words, it's hard to be an adolescent girl. Adolescent girls today are dealing with porn culture. They're dealing with these rigid gender expectations. They're dealing with um, body hatred um, that's intense at times. And they're bombarded with all these images in the media they make it very hard to just accept themselves, especially if uh, they they are wondering if they might be gay or uh, lesbian or bi. And um, so, so it's not that the Internet made them trans, but it is, I think, that seeing the way transgenderism is sort of lionized in the mainstream media, it becomes a really appealing way of dealing with these difficult feelings. You know, the other thing about teenagers is they all want to be special and they want to belong to a group. And coming out as transgender in many school environments today immediately does both. Mm. It gives a group of people and it makes you special. You mentioned cutting. Mm -hmm. It became sort of, I don't want to say um, trendy because it's a harmful thing obviously mm-hmm. but 
because I've noticed that a lot of the pro-transitioning agenda, um, especially around youth, is connected to statistics that say that trans kids are more likely to self-harm or are in danger of even suicide if they aren't, if their identities aren't validated and they aren't allowed and, and supported in transitioning. What do you know about that information? You know, the suicide statistics are definitely frightening as, you know, the study that gets quoted most often is that 41% of transgender people will attempt suicide at some point. If you look at the study, it's, the study's authors are clear that that number is probably a little high. Uh, it's inflated because of the way the study was done, most likely. It's worth mentioning that um, gay, lesbian, and bisexual youth have a suicide attempt statistic that's, I believe it's like 38%. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the message is see, it's really hard to be gender nonconforming, you know, for sure. The thing about the stu- suicide statistic that's really important is that, um, yes, it's true that these kids are suffering and, and in pain. We have no information, no good information, to my knowledge, anywhere, that says that transition alleviates that. So even that, that Williams Institute statistic, the 41%, that does not speak to whether the attempt occurred before or after transition. And there is some good, uh, there are some very good studies out there that indicate that suicide may be higher after transition. Now, I'm not saying that transition causes suicide. I imagine it's much more complicated than that. It's likely that the people who transitioned felt worse to begin with and therefore are more likely to uh, attempt suicide. However, it is clearly true that transition is not a panacea and does not in and of itself prevent suicide. So I'm afraid that the activists have kind of manipulated the statistic to frighten parents. There is a good deal of good evidence that kids who identify as transgender come with other serious mental health issues a lot of the time. And this is what we're seeing again and again, is that these kids are socially isolated, they're anxious, they're depressed, I think I am seeing that uh, there's a higher percentage of gifted kids that are academically gifted kids identifying as transgender. And that may be that, you know, sometimes those kids um, struggle to fit in more, have, have a harder time, you know, finding peers and feeling like they're um, part of groups and that kind of thing. You know, some of these kids have more serious uh, issues. Many are on the Asperger's spectrum. Uh, I've talked to parents whose kids have diagnoses of bipolar disorder. I, I have known of parents whose kids um, had psychotic symptoms and then presented as transgender. And so, you know, I, I guess it, this very kind of sticky, complicated thing that we're trying to unravel here is does the suicidality and the self-harm come before identifying as transgender and wanting to transition? Does it come because a kid isn't allowed to transition? 
Does it come after? And and I want to tell you that it's just not very clear. However, there is a lot of evidence that the psychopathology presents before the kid comes out as transgender in very many of these cases. So I'm, you know, troubled by the way that people who question the idea of gender identity or who simply don't think our first response should be to unequivocally support a child who claims to be the opposite sex into transition. I'm I'm troubled by the way that, you know, people who question this stuff are, are sort of persecuted and they're even, you know, losing their jobs. The situation with Dr. Kenneth Zucker, did you follow mm-hmm. that? Oh, yes. Yeah, who was fired as the head of the Gender Identity Clinic at Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health because he felt the first approach should be to try to get kids to feel comfortable with their bodies instead of immediately transitioning them. You know, that situation is really frightening to me. So I wonder, what's been your experience um, speaking out about these issues and how have you seen it affect your field and, and your... Your colleagues, maybe? Well, I have had many, 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 many therapists contact me quietly, often wanting to stay anonymous, telling me that they cannot speak out for fear of losing their jobs or having their um, careers affected negatively. Some of them have have been working at gender identity clinics and are very concerned. I, I think concern is more widespread than people know. I think it's a little bit of an emperor's new clothes kind of situation. Nobody really wants to say anything because no one wants to lose their head. I've decided to speak out because I feel like what's happening is wrong. And I, you know, I I, I think it's important to say something and I'm in a position where I don't really have a job to lose because I'm in private practice. So if you really see something and you know it's wrong and and you don't speak out to me we just have to do something i mean you you had that great piece recently about we have to be braver and that's that's right where i am too i mean i think if we can i i am i'm sympathetic to people who can't speak out for whatever reason because they fear losing a job but if you can speak out i think you should yeah i agree i mean i'm in a i'm in a position where i felt able to because I'm an independent writer and journalist, and I have a platform, so obviously there are repercussions for me in numerous ways, and including career-wise, but mm. I just started to feel like you did, that things were getting way out of hand, mm-hmm. um, and that it was, like you said, wrong, and I had to say something and I feel like more people are starting to speak out. I think so, too. And the more of us who speak out, the more we will give courage to others to also speak out. Exactly. So, finally, this change in public discourse and approach to transgenderism has happened really, really quickly, it seems. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, without really much critical thought at all in terms of social impact, impact on women's rights, impacts on individuals, discourse, human rights. Why do you think that's the case? And what can we do to kind of pump the brakes? Huh. Um, that is such a big question. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have 
wondered about that myself. It's sort of, it's pretty baffling. You know, I, I think for one thing, it's been framed as a civil rights issue. And this kind of relates to uh, to whether or not, like, do we think of it as an identity or do we think of it as a mental health issue? If it's a mental health issue, we can explore, assess it, and treat it in a variety of ways, including possibly transition. But if it's an identity, then suddenly we've turned it into a human rights issue and all that we can do is to just affirm and validate. And and so there's this way that... Um, you know, progressivism has sort of collapsed in on itself and now there's no more room for free speech. I mean, I think that that is occurring in lots of different places in our culture. You know, Ken Wilber said this this great thing at some point about how liberalism just will eventually sort of feed on itself because there is no firm place to stand and say, well, no, this is wrong, actually. It's sort of everything. We just sort of accept everything and, and it has to be okay. And I... I am a lifelong liberal. I get it. I mean, my first impulse when this started coming up was I just wanted to say, well, yeah, if that works for them, that's fine. You know, in other words, we don't bring our critical thinking to bear on it because that would be tantamount to judgment almost, and we don't want to do that because we we want to be supportive of people's differences. But at, but at some point, I mean, certainly I hit this point where I had to go, no, no, wait, wait a second, wait a second, sterilizing kids because they won't wear a dress? This is not okay. Why do you think all of this has happened so quickly? So I think that there are a lot of uh, adults who transition, in particular, um, you know, later life transitioning males who, um, you know, it's important to them to be seen and validated as women. I mean, I personally don't think they're women, but this is sort of the cry of the transgender activist movement is that trans women are women and they always have been as a matter of fact so we're to accept that Caitlyn Jenner is a woman and always has been which is sort of an absurd conundrum if you think about it I, I think that um, many of these um, later life transitioning you know male to females uh, many of them are you know wealthy and and have kind of put money behind this they're they're significant sources of funding for um, transgender activist organizations. And it's important to them, I think, that kids transition, maybe for some of them because they suffered a great deal as kids and you know they're sort of projecting their own experience onto kids that they see today. But, but also because if, if kids are trans or transitioned, then it kind of validates the narrative that they, in fact, have always been women and were born in the wrong body, which is not really a good reason to transition kids, mm-hmm. to validate someone else's narrative. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your courage in speaking out and for sharing your your perspective and your work and your analysis with me. Um, it's It's been really... Um, interesting and and informative to me, and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. You just heard an interview with Lisa Marciano, a clinical social worker and Jungian analyst. Her article, Layers of Meaning, a Jungian Analyst Questions the Identity Model for Trans-Identified Youth, can be found at fourthwavenow.com. 
For more on our work, visit theyoungsoul.com. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced by Megan Murphy out of Vancouver, BC, Canada. For more information on the show, please visit www.feministcurrent.com. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org or email us at info at feministcurrent.com. <laughs>